Good morning, Five Points. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Will you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5? And would you remain standing with me for the word of God? Now, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up besides Dagon. And then when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon and do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Then the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain for, with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out upon them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of, the, of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around the ark to us, uh, the ark of God of Israel, to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated, and would you pray with me? Lord, as we consider the mighty works that you have done throughout history, as we considered this passage this morning from the account of the early days of Israel in the Promised Land, it seems so distant from us, and yet there are truths in this passage that we clearly and truly can apply to our lives. Lord, as you have given every word of your scripture to us to be uh, to empower us and to encourage us and strengthen us in the faith, we ask that this text this morning might be used in that way, that your spirit would speak through the preaching of your word, and that hearts might be opened this morning. It's in the great name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It's one of my favorite childhood stories growing up, and I'm sure this is true for many of you, is C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. And of course, in the first book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as the Pevensey children first enter into the land of Narnia through the magic wardrobe, uh, Lucy, uh, the youngest daughter, 
enters in first, and upon entering, she encounters the fawn, Mr. Tumnus. And when she returns back from Narnia, her siblings naturally do not believe a word that she says, uh, especially her older brother, Edmund, who throughout the story is really the antagonist, uh, of course, the older brother, uh, picking on his younger sister and simply not believing a word that she said. But when Edmund finds himself going into the wardrobe and landing in the land of Narnia, his first encounter is not with Tumnus the fawn, but with the white witch who pulls up on her sleigh and welcomes him to sit beside her. When the White Witch discovers that, uh, that Edmund is one of the uh, prophesied sons of Adam, the four kings and queens who would sit on the throne in Ker Paravel, uh, the White Witch, uh, wanting to keep her grasp on the power and rule over Narnia, tells Edmund that she will give him anything his heart desires if he will bring back his brother and sisters and turn them over to her. She, of course, uh, says this in the means of, I'm going to set them on the throne, but we know as the readers that she is seeking to do away with them so that she can keep her power. And so she says to Edmund, I will give you anything your heart desires, and he asks for Turkish delight, which is an, a, a type of candy covered in, uh, in white sugar. And so Edmund, he gorges himself uh, after he receives this Turkish delight, and he just stuffs it in his mouth. And once he's done, he turns to her and says, can I have some more? And Edmund, uh, as he says this, the white witch says, I will give you more Turkish delight, but first you must promise that you will bring your siblings back to Narnia. So as he makes this vow and as he uh, realizes that this woman is not exactly who she says she is, uh, C.S. Lewis writes in chapter 4, Edmund was already feeling uncomfortable from having eaten too many sweets, and when he heard that the lady he had made friends with was a dangerous witch, he felt even more uncomfortable, but he still wanted to taste that Turkish delight again more than he wanted anything else. A few months ago, one of uh, my wife's siblings brought over Turkish delight to our house. So naturally, of course, being a fan of Narnia, I had to try it, and um, it left much to be desired, to say the least. Uh, I, I, at first, I could not understand Edmund, and I was just, what? Why? I don't understand. But then as I continued to think about that, in the context of this uh, passage this morning, I began to wonder if maybe that was Lewis's point. Maybe that was the point that Edmund was seeking satisfaction in something that truly could not come through on its promises, and we so often do the same thing in our lives. So as we dig into this passage this morning, looking at the, the fall of the god of the Philistines, Dagon, and the subsequent punishment and judgment from God, it becomes realistic, and in, in our own lives, the fact that we treat our idols in the same way. So to paint some context as we dig into this passage, so 1 Samuel uh, is directly following chronologically the uh, events of the days of the judges, and the book of Judges ends with this phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
So 1 Samuel chapter 5 is before Saul is crowned as king of Israel. And so here we have the context of Israel in the promised land trying to uh, understand what their role is in this land and to conquer their enemies. And God, of course, told them when they entered into the promised land, he said, do away with all of your enemies, lest they should turn your hearts away from me and to pagan gods. But the Philistines, we see the prevalent enemies of Israel throughout the Old Testament, uh, they were not done away with. They were allowed to remain in their land. And the Philistines became a hindrance and a stumbling block to the people of Israel. And so in the, the, very, uh, the previous chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Philistines take up arms against the nation of Israel, and they win. They go to battle, and they conquer Israel, and then capture the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, which was the very centerpiece of worship of the people of Israel. And so God allowed the nation of Israel to be defeated, and he allowed his ark to be conquered and to be taken into the land of the Philistines. And this is where we pick up in our text. So as the, the Philistines capture the ark of God, it says in verse 1 that they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and they take the ark of God, and they bring it into the temple of their god, Dagon. Now, it's important to recognize within this context of history that when nation took up war against nation, uh, they oftentimes understood this as one god taking up arms against another god. So whichever nation would conquer the other nation, that, of course, represented the fact that their god had conquered the gods of the other nation. So the Philistines here are under the impression that because we've defeated the Israelites, therefore... Uh, Dagon has conquered the God of Israel, and so they take a hold of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the symbol of worship, and they bring it, and they set it beside their God, Dagon. Now, this is not the first time in Scripture that a trophy of war had been brought from Israel into the temple of this God, Dagon. About 20 years earlier, a bound and broken man named Samson, the final judge of Israel, was also brought into the temple of Dagon as a human tribute to this pagan god. And if you've read the book of Judges, you know that that story does not end well. Samson, with his last dying breath and with the last strength that God gives him, pushes on the pillars and brings the temple of Dagon to the ground wiping away all of the priests with him. Clearly, the, the temple of Dagon has been rebuilt uh, af at this point as the ark makes its way and sits there next to this pagan deity. So within the land of the Philistines, uh, there were three uh, primary gods. There was uh, Baal, or what you might pronounce as Baal. Uh, he is the chief god amongst the Philistines. Um, there's also a god named Asherah, and then here we have Dagon. Dagon was uh, worshipped all throughout this, land, this area of the world, and he was considered to be uh, the god of harvest and of grain. So he is essentially a vegetable god. 
He's a god of gardening. If you, have, if you like to garden uh, and you were a pagan, this would be, this would be the guy. Um, we don't know what he looks like. Uh, I, I went on Google to see if we know what he looks like, and um, for some reason, artists uh, paint him as like a mermaid. It's interesting. He has um, the, the bottom half of a fish, but that's uh, just complete artist uh, freedom to do what they want. So we don't know what he looks like, but we do know from this passage that he has a stump, he has a head, and he has hands. This is all we know about this God. So unlike Yahweh, unlike the God of Israel, who the ark represented worship, but the ark itself was not God. The temple and the tabernacle, they were not the God himself. But for the Philistines, they could point at this, this idol named Dagon and say, there he is, that is our God. We worship him, we bow down before him, and we have built him a house so that we can come and worship him each day. And so this ark moves into the temple of Dagon. It becomes essentially Dagon's roommate. And whereas Solomon, when he completed the temple, he acknowledged that the highest of heavens could not contain Yahweh, this pagan god has his own little house in the midst of the land of Philistia. And so, verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, Surely they could not have predicted what was going to take place. Uh, Behold, Dagon had fallen on his face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and put him back into his place. How embarrassing it must be when your God falls off of his bed at night and is lying prostrate before another God. He He lands in this position of worship before the ark of the Lord, And this just points to us, I mean, this text almost preaches itself, just the foolishness of idolatry. Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 40 of his book, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, and he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Prophet Isaiah acknowledged that even the pagan Uh, Worshippers, they tried to find the best material so that this exact thing would not happen and so that their idols would not fall. And so you you can just read the humor in this text for itself. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. They have to physically pick up their god and put him back uh, so that he can go back to where he needs to be. And friends, we often do this with our own idols. While we don't live in a culture and a society that physically makes carved images, we don't create physical idols, and yet each and every one of us, we treat our little G gods in the same way. When the idols of this world, when the things that we worship and the things we elevate above God, when they fall flat on their face before our great God, the sinful heart is so rebellious that we might brush it off a little, wipe off some smudges and say, no, 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 this, I, need to, I need to put this right back here. This needs to go here. Uh, when they're exposed for the weak, worthless vessels that they truly are, we treat it as though it's a uh, uh, nothing to see here moment. This, this never really, really truly happened. And yet, in verse 4, after they have put Dagon back in his place, the embarrassment only gets worse. 
When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold, and only the trunk was left to him. So on the previous day, we could imagine maybe the Philistines thought, thought it was an accident. Maybe someone accidentally knocked him over. Maybe a strong wind entered into the temple and blew him over accidentally. But this day, uh, there is no denying that this was the sovereign act of Yahweh. This was the powerful and mighty work of the God of Israel who was decimating his enemy. Maybe the Philistines were, were coming in this morning thinking, I hope this didn't happen again. I hope, I hope Dagon didn't fall over again. And yet, when they enter in, not only is he down, but he is, he is, he is dead. He's lying prostrate again before the ark, but this time his head and his hands are separated from the rest of his body. It's important to emphasize, too, here, the, the text does not say that his head and hands broke off. It says they were sliced cleanly off. They were lying cut off on the threshold. And so when the Philistines and their priests entered into the temple on this day, the first thing that they encountered crossing over the threshold was the head and the hands of their God lying there, staring at them blankly. And they look up and they see just the stump of their deity standing there. And so verse 5 tells us, and it, it shows us this superstition that the Philistines continued to, to put forward. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The writer of First Samuel tells us that even though this God has been so humiliated by having his head and hands separated from the rest of his body, there are still priests of Dagon. There is still a house of Dagon. There is still worship of this idol who has met his maker and has been shown to be not a true god. So there's still worship here. And again, this goes to further emphasize how foolishness idolatry truly is and also how depraved our human hearts are that when our idols are shown to be completely done away with, we seek to worship them even though we know the truth. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Though we acknowledge, though every single individual has an innate knowledge of God the Creator being the one true God, we suppress the truth in, in unrighteousness and worship the creation rather than the Creator. In these first five passages, or five verses in this passage, Dagon's name, maybe you, you noticed this as we were reading it together, his name was mentioned ten different times in five verses. It's as though the author of 1 Samuel 
is repeating his name so often that when any Israelite read this text or heard it preached, they thought immediately their minds went to this event, right? Dagon. Oh yeah, that's the God who had his head and hands cut off. That's right. Remember him? He was kind of foolish. And as I've been considering this text in preparation, I've been praying that God would give me as well a, such an awareness of my own sin and those own idols that we build for ourselves. If God would so tune my heart to his will that at that very moment of temptation, the very moment when that creeping doubt comes in of maybe there's something better than what God has said, if my idols have been so done away with that if, if at that very moment that thought enters my mind, I could immediately go back to, oh yes, that God has been defeated. That idol is no more. That sin has been done away with. And this is something I think that we can foster in our own lives through the grace of God that we immediately have a sense of the holiness of God because of what he has done, the work that he has done in and through our lives. And so as the people of Philistia realize that this is a big problem to have this ark who clearly can make the, their strongest gods submit to their will, Yahweh decides to pour out judgment upon the people. Look at verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So again, the irony here, although the hands of Dagon were now separated from his body, the hand of Yahweh is hard and heavy against the people of Ashdod. Though they had thought that they had defeated Yahweh in the capturing and taking the ark away to their community, Yahweh reveals that he himself is still very much alive, very much fighting for his own honor. And they realize the folly of their ways. Now, when God judges the Philistines, uh, he sends tumors. And uh, scholars have given two different things as to what these tumors might be. Uh, the first is the idea that this may have been some sort of bubonic plague. And they point to the fact that in chapter 6, when the ark returns to Israel, the Philistines have to send five golden tumors and five golden mice along with the ark. Uh, which may, many scholars point to that and say this may have been some sort of disease um, that came in with a rodent population. Uh, the other idea, and this is taken from the fact that this term frequently is translated in the Hebrew, um, is that these are hemorrhoids. So either way, this is not a pleasant experience for anyone involved. That's all we need to say about that. So these tumors that are afflicting the entire population of Ashdod as the hand of Yahweh is heavy against Israel. This, of course, is reminiscent of the plagues on, uh, on Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians. The people of Philistia were very well aware of what had taken place in the history of Israel. If you look back at verse 4 again, or chapter 4, the Philistines specifically reference the fact that this God is the God who 
brought his people out of the nation of Egypt. And surely, because this isn't that far removed from the events of the Exodus, the events of the judges, the wanderings in the wilderness, I'm sure the Exodus was widely circulated throughout the people of Israel. This is why they have made it to the promised land in the first place. And the people of Philistia, the Philistines were very well aware of Uh, the reputation of Yahweh. It's as though his reputation preceded him in how he dealt with pagan nations. And so since in this time, again, the, the people believed that their gods and goddesses, their deities, only had authority over certain regions of territory, right? This is why Dagon had authority over crops and vegetables, this is why the, the, if you read mythologies of, of, um, of empires and cultures in the past, they all have their own little thing that they have power over, right? We know Zeus's power is the god of gods. We know Thor is the god of thunder. They all have their own little territories over which they have power and authority. So the people of Ashdod, uh, they come together and say, we need, to, we need to get rid of this thing. This thing is, is really taking its toll upon us. So verse 8, they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And the Philistine lords answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So these five lords of the five uh, Philistine territories, they gather together and they decide, well, once we remove the Ark of Yahweh from uh, Ashdod, maybe his power over that territory will no longer be able to be exerted. And so they pass it along. To put this in our own perspective, if we here in Auburn Hills had the Ark of the Covenant, this would be like us sending it over to Troy and saying, All right, you guys deal with it. We're not going to deal with this anymore. And if we get it over to you, Yahweh will not be able to exert his his pressure or his authority anymore. But once again, uh, as the text says, after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that once again these tumors break out upon them. So immediately upon entrance into the land, they didn't even have to set it in their temple. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant brings with it even quicker and even stronger judgment from Yahweh. Whereas when the Ark entered into Ashdod, it took a little time for their God to be completely done away with, and then these tumors begin to spread. Upon immediately arrival in this land, the tumors begin to break out. So what do the people do? So they sent the Ark of God, verse 10, they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the Ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. So now the Ark in our context, now it goes from Troy down south to Rochester, and the people of Rochester are like, no, 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 we don't want it. Keep it there. Absolutely not. They are terrified of what will happen if this Ark comes into their territory. And so it's interesting, too, because when we consider how God judges these people, although these are, these are kinsmen, right? These are the five lords of the Philistines, 
It's, they're trying to pass around this ark, trying to prove that Yahweh, they're somewhere in their territory, that Yahweh does not have authority, and yet he demonstrates that he is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of the Philistines. He is the God of the Medes and the Persians. He's the God of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. He is the God over every single culture. There is nowhere in this world that Yahweh cannot go that he does not have sole authority over. And so after these tumors continue to spread throughout the land of the Philistines, verse 11, finally, they have no other option but to send the ark of God back to Israel. Verse 11, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. So these five lords once again gather together. They are, they have no other options at this point and they have no, they have no conclusion other than we need to get this ark away from us. So twice now, the wisdom of the Philistines had proven faulty. First they assume, it, well, if we set him next to our God, maybe our God will, they'll be able to just hang out and it'll all be okay. And then after they see that their God is powerless next to Yahweh, they decide, well, maybe if we just move it somewhere else, then we'll be okay. But both of these have continued to yield harsher and harsher judgment upon the people of Philistine. It's interesting, too, to note this growing panic amongst the people. It says in Ashdod, the people were terrified. In Gath, the people were in a very great panic. And then in Ekron, the people were in a deathly panic. So there's a growing awareness of we need to get rid of this ark. And this judgment of Yahweh is also, it's, it's all-encompassing. It's not just it, it, those who die, experienced, I can only imagine, dying from tumors, just a, a terrible death. And then it says those who did not die experienced these heavy tumors as well. And the passage concludes, the cry of the city went up to heaven. Not evidence of the fact that they suddenly repent of their sins and turn to Yahweh and say, you alone are God, but a cry to heaven, almost like a, a no other option. Will someone please help us? Will someone please give us a way to get this thing out of here so that we no longer have to suffer with these terrible afflictions? So when we consider how God, he, of course we know God, Scripture says God is a jealous God. He's a God who is jealous for his own name's sake. He seeks after his own glory amongst the people. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that God punished nations for their idolatry through a variety of different plagues, right? Of course, the, the most prevalent one we read about, the plagues, the ten plagues of Egypt, where the gods of Egypt were shown to be false gods. We read of the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal 
as the sacrifices come down and consume the, the, the offering that Elijah offered, and yet the prophets of Baal could not do anything to garner the ear of their God. We see when Nebuchadnezzar commands people to fall down and worship his golden statue, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. They are thrown into the fiery furnace, and yet Yahweh delivers them as well through the fourth man in the midst of the fiery flames. God judged the nations through horrible, difficult circumstances. And so we can understand, and, and we can understand why through these prophecies of the Messiah, the people of Israel were expecting a conquering and mighty military Messiah and a Redeemer who would come and rescue them from the plight of the Romans. And yet, of course, as we don't always anticipate and as, as we don't always see clearly what God is doing, when this Jewish man from the backwaters of Galilee arrives on the scene and he claims to be one with God, claims to be the very son of God, and he says, I and the Father are one, the people naturally hear what he, what he says, and they want to kill him. But yet, when he is revealed to be the one that he is, when the wise men come, when they have seen the star in the east, and they travel from afar to see the one who was born king of the Jews, looking at this tiny infant, they fall down, and they worship him. The guards in the garden, as Christ is being led away to the cross, when he is asked by the guards, they say, are you the one named Jesus? And he speaks the divine name. He says, I am. And it says that the guards fall down as dead men before Christ and the words that he speaks. When the disciples encounter the risen Jesus, the disciples who had fled for their lives at that moment of persecution, and when they recognized that their, their rabbi was going to be led to the cross, when they meet him after his resurrection, they once again fall down and worship him. And when we look at the Old Testament, we look at how God judged the nations— and we see these plagues and these persecutions and these trials of God proclaiming his holiness amongst the idols of the nations. And then we see Christ. We see Christ who came and ate with his enemies. The miracles that he did were not miracles of judgment. They were miracles of, of promise and of hope. They were promises of healing the blind man walking on water, calming the storm, raising Lazarus from the dead. And some people have taken this, and, and there was a, a heretic from the past named Marcion, and he looked at these two things, and he said, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not the same God. He took a strict line between Old Testament and New Testament and said, the God of the Old Testament is wrath and judgment and terror. The God of the New Testament is grace and hope and love. 
But we know that's not true. We know that it is one true God from beginning to end. It is the Trinitarian God of Scripture that we see who continues to defeat idols. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Christ himself, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have a God who, though in the Old Testament we see great accounts of his judgment and wrath upon his enemies, we see this promise of the Messiah weaved throughout all of the Old Covenant. We see his grace poured out upon the sojourner, the wanderer, the poor and the needy. We see salvation offered through this sacrificial system that though it could not once and for all do away with sins, it, made, uh, it, it gave people an opportunity to be right with him. Of course, fulfilled even greater in the final sacrifice for sins, Jesus Christ. And so as we consider idolatry, as we think about in our own lives this reality of the fact that each of us, we put things before God. Last weekend, I had the delight to be in Mississippi visiting a church down there. And as we were driving around, um, it was so interesting because we were right on the Gulf Coast. And the, although it was almost 20 years ago, every single person that I met could still account to me the very moment exactly what they were doing when Hurricane Katrina swept upon the shores and decimated their area of the country. And as we drove around, my hosts were pointing out uh, there was a blue line on all of the telephone poles that marked the water level after Hurricane Katrina came in. And as I'm looking up at this telephone pole, it was amazing, uh, 15, 20 feet above uh, ground level to see and to consider these waters and how they just decimated this little part of the land. And of course, when natural disasters happen, when the Twin Towers fell on September 11th, when all of these terrible things take place, what is the battle cry? We will rebuild. We will pull together and we will rebuild what we lost. And there's a great sentiment to that, but oftentimes what that means is we will get our stuff back that we lost. And driving around and seeing these multi-million dollar houses that had been completely renovated and renewed after Hurricane Katrina, and not that there's anything intrinsically wrong, wrong with wealth, but it's amazing to think of all of the things that we strive after, the things that we spend years at work, the things that we seek to gain that are just stuff, just just things. But of course, idolatry also doesn't always look like physical things. Right? We strive after in our own lives things that prove themselves over and over again to be completely worthless, that offer promises that never truly come through. We strive after the next high. We strive after the most beautiful people. 
Strive after the next momentary pleasure that will be fleeting as soon as it comes. We strive after the comfort of life with ease and recreation. We strive after all of these things that God says, and and some of these things are not bad in and of themselves, but taken as what our ultimate purpose in life is, that is when these things become idols. And even in the church, even as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is easy to make idols of things in my life. It's easy for me to look at my upbringing and say, well, I was born and raised in the church. I don't know anything different. And to say, well, okay, therefore, I have some higher standing before God because he saved me at a young age. And yet that is an idol of pride that I have and that God has shown over and over again to be worthless. And so as we consider this this revelation of God who defeated Dagon once and for all, who poured out judgment upon his people. And yet this is also the God who sent his son to die and who proved himself to be the very incarnation of the son of God. Three things that we as believers can consider. First of all, and this should be a joy for each of us, is knowing that God's victory over idolatry is assured. Christ, in his atoning, vicarious death that paid for sin once and for all, then he rose from the dead and ascended back to the Father and sits now at the right hand of God. Scripture says that Christ is ruling as King of kings, Lord of lords, and is defeating all of the idols of the world. But the idols of the world today and throughout the rest of history until Christ returns, the idols of the world are being defeated through the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right? We do not take up the physical sword as unfortunately people in history have. Right? We do not wage against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers in the heavenlies. We are given the sword of the Spirit. We are given the motivating power of the promised Holy Spirit who indwells us to take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. We at Five Point say that all the time, to our neighbors and to the nations. And as Christ is ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the Psalms promise that God is making all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Those enemies are coming under the subjection of Christ through the mighty proclamation of the gospel message. And so when we look around us, and as our culture continues to push God off, though we have historic roots in the Judeo-Christian worldview, our culture we all know is continuing, and our government is continuing to say to God, we will not have it your way. We will do things according to our own wisdom and understanding. As our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world face persecution that most of us cannot even grasp or understand, it does not mean that God is not working. 
Although the ark of Yahweh was captured, although God allowed the people of Israel in this passage to be defeated by the Philistines, that did not mean that God was not doing something in and through it. And so we need to be comforted by the fact that God uses the suffering of his people. As Roman says, it's ultimately for his glory and for our own good. Christ promised his disciples that as we take up our cross and follow after him, there will be trials and tribulation and persecution and famine and sword for those of us who claim the name of Christ in this world. And yet we have the confidence that when Christ returns in glory, all of the idols of the world will be vanquished. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom, to, the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the final enemy to be destroyed is death. And that is the promise that we have, that Christ right now is ruling at the right hand of God the Father as the King of kings and Lord of lords and is putting all of his enemies under his feet through the spread of the gospel. So just as Christ's victory over idolatry is assured, secondly, his judgment upon idolatry is complete. So Christ doesn't just, he doesn't just submit idols to his, or under his rule. He just does away with them completely. The judgment upon idolatry is complete and certain. Christ has always, is currently, and will always be defeating the false gods of this world. We look around at history. The testimony of archaeology tells, it, tells us that there have been empires that have risen and fallen throughout the history of the world. And though Rome surely cried out that we are the chief culture and we will reign forever, Rome is, Rome is in ruins. The Roman Empire is gone. The Greek Empire is gone. The Babylonian Empire is gone. There are no empires that will stand on the last day when Christ returns. Everything will be reduced to rubble except that which glorifies God. Isaiah 37. Isaiah is talking here about the fact that even the king of Assyria, when he came into different lands that had false gods, that had different gods other than the gods of Assyria, he did away with them himself. Isaiah says, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood, and stone, and therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth might know that you alone are the Lord. So God has complete victory over the idols of this world. But finally, and if you haven't heard anything that has been said today, this is the most important part, is that 
While God's victory over idolatry is assured and while his judgment upon idolatry is absolutely complete, God's grace towards idolaters is overwhelming. All right, God puts every enemy under Christ's feet, making them a footstool. And that would be a terrifying story if Christ had not come and first died to rescue a people for himself. Because the truth of, of reality is that every single one of us is guilty of the sin of idolatry. With the first and greatest commandment that our Savior said, summarizing the entire law of God of love, your, or love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And brothers and sisters, I can tell you I have never once in a single moment in my life loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have never fulfilled that law even close. Every single thing that I do each and every day is tainted with the reality of my sinful nature. And yet the joy of the gospel is that when Christ died for me, and when God looks at me, he does not look at me and he does not see my account. He doesn't look at me as someone who has been an idolater from day one. He looks at me and sees the perfect record of his son. He sees the washed and purified garment of Christ that he has put over me because of the shed blood that he poured out on the cross. And so while I have never perfectly fulfilled the law of God, and I never will, Christ has on my behalf. And if you are sitting in here today and you are a blood-brought son or daughter of Christ, he doesn't look at you and see idolater, an idolater. He looks at you and he sees his son. And the good news of that is that if you're sitting in here today and you are not a follower of Christ, his grace for you is overwhelming. And his call to you is to come and repent to come to him as the one who smashes idols, who can pull you away from any addiction, any power, any sin that might be holding its grip upon you because the grace of God and the love of Christ is calling you today through the preaching of this word to repent and turn to him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for idolaters and offers them new life through faith and trust in him alone. And it is my desire, and many of us have a desire in here, that if that is you, if you are shackled to sin, there is hope and freedom in the one who defeated every idol. Again, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, for neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is me. I find myself all over that list so many times. But Paul doesn't end there because he says in the following verse, and such were some of you. Not such are some of you, but such were. But you were washed 
you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so this day, as we consider the absolute conquest of Yahweh by his power over the idols of the world, I want to encourage each of you, and I'm, I myself am, am encouraged, do not look to Turkish delight to satisfy you, but look to the great lion. Do not look to the idols of this world to save you from your sin. Do not, do not look to your sin as the one thing that brings you pleasure because it absolutely never will. The idols of this world are nothing but wood, hay, and stone. The idols of our heart are nothing but breaking the law of God, and God has and will continue to defeat them. So look your eyes to the Lion of Judah, the one who conquered the grave, and the one who is reigning now and defeating every idol and is pouring out his love and grace towards idolaters like me who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, you are the one true and reigning God over this world the one with all authority as you spoke this world into existence and call every man, woman, and child this day to repent and believe the gospel. A gospel which says that there is nothing left for us to do but to turn to you through the powerful working of your spirit to put our faith and trust in you alone and you will rescue us from the shackles of every idol that holds us fast. Father, this text is a challenge to me as I consider my own sin. Sin that I have committed yesterday, today, and I am certain I will commit tomorrow, and yet help me to repent of those sins. Help me to look to you as the one who has broken every power of that sin. Lord, I know that's a prayer that many of us in here can pray. And Father, ultimately, as, as we've said and as we've studied this morning, if anyone in this room is continuing to be shackled and rebelling against you in their sinful depravity, would you give them ears to hear and eyes to see and a new heart take out their heart of stone even this day and give them a new heart of flesh so that they might recognize that you are God and that Christ is a powerful and merciful Savior. So Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this word that you have prepared, pre prepared for us this morning, and I ask that we would reflect upon it this week as we go out, and might our lives be a reflection of who you are and what you have done on our behalf. And now in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.